Welcome to uh, 2018 in December. <laughs> it is my goal, not today, um, and I really haven't been set up for success here because it is almost noon, but it's my goal to try to be uh, very articulate in what it is that I'm trying to say in order to generate discussion rather than to teach. It is my um, what I am intending on doing after this Sunday is going down to just a simple 10-question format to try to make it a really digestible conversation for you all. This Sunday, I can't do that because this Sunday I really do have to teach uh, because this Sunday is the arguably most important Sunday of this year in terms of teaching. And that is because we have moved on to a new subject which is standing with others in the tension. Now, as you remember, we have been sort of going through these two, uh, two a year concepts of account, uh, well, of beauty, right? So we've been hitting different things like wisdom and maturity and education, so on and so forth, right? This year we're gonna be discussing accountability or being accountable and being invested in other people. Um, <clears throat> to that end, that means that we're going to need to have a conversation about interacting with other people. And when you talk about interacting with other people, at least in the Bible scene, you're going to be talking about what? Love. Love is going to be the subject for this year. Yes, we are going to be talking about being accountable. Yes, we are going to talk about being invested. But we are going to be talking about love primarily love and what it looks like across multiple different subjects so that we can learn to stand with others in the tension. Now, what tension might we be talking about? Well, if you take a look at our image here, what we have is a bunch of soldiers, right? These soldiers wearing purple garb um, are soldiers of the king. But you'll notice that they are in what is called a phalanx position. You guys know what the phalanx position does? Geo says, yes, super lit, right? So <laughs> the phalanx position closes off the ranks so there's no holes for anything to get through, right? Why are they in that phalanx position? They're in that phalanx position because they are guarding themselves amongst uh, a threat that is their way. So where are they set? They are set amongst a big city, right? And in this big city, specifically, if I'm, if I'm going to be specific, it's going to be New York. Uh, but in this big city, there's a bunch of distractions. Now, they would call them attractions. I would call them distractions. Why? Because that is the nature of the tension. The tension that we live in as Christians is the tension of being in the world, but not of the world. And to be in the world and not of the world, we need to create a phalanx, right? We need to close our ranks and make them tight-knit. Well, the problem is, how do we do that when we're constantly shoving each other and pushing at each other and saying, no, you need to get into this position and you need to get into that position, and we can't learn to be around each other. We don't like each other, so because we don't like each other, we can't love each other. Now, some may tell you that it is impossible to uh, put the two together, that, that, that they are um, really mutually exclusive terms. I will tell you they are not mutually exclusive terms. In order to have a phalanx, we have to be relying on other people. We have to be accountable to the narrative, and we have to be invested. So... In order to talk about that, we talk about love. What is love? What does it mean to create a phalanx? There's your first clue of what I'm going to be talking about. Love creates a phalanx. It puts things together in an accountable, invested way that protects. So, what is love? What is love to God? What is love to man? Is there a difference between God's love and man's love? I'm going to read from the book of Psalms 146. 
You can open your Bibles if you want to to it, but I'm just going to read it straight out. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O my soul. I will praise the Lord as long as I live. I will sing praises to my God while I have my being. Put not your trust in princes, in a son of man in whom there is no salvation. When his breath departs, he returns to the earth. On that very day, his plans perish. Blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord his God, who made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them, who keeps faith forever, who executes justice for the oppressed, who gives food to the hungry. The Lord sets the prisoner free. The Lord opens the eyes of the blind. The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. The Lord watches over the sojourners. He upholds the widow and the fatherless, but the way of the wicked he brings to ruin. The Lord will reign forever. Your God, O Zion, to all generations. Praise the Lord. What am I talking about bringing that passage in when we're supposed to be talking about love? Why would I be talking about that? What is love to man? Well, love to man, put simply, is an effect. It is an effect, or perhaps, if you will, a phenomenon. You've heard it said that love is nothing more than a chemical reaction. That is a release of dopamine, or oxytocin, or vasopressin, or endorphins. In fact, check this out. In a study published in September in the Proceedings of the National Academics of Science, uh, a guy named Whalum, he studied a version of the AVPR1A gene that codes for vasopressin receptors in men. And he studied more than 1,000 Swedish men and found that men who carried a particular variant of the gene were less likely to be married than men without the variant, were more likely men with a particular... Okay found that men who carried a particular variant of the gene were less likely to be married than men without the variant. Um, They were more likely to report a recent crisis in their marriage, and they ranked lower on a scale of partner bonding that asked questions such as, how often do you kiss your mate? So according to us, we can say that certain people are going to be more likely to be married, to be more likely in a committed relationship, depending on the release of vasopressin. Love is nothing more than a chemical reaction akin to what happens when you eat chocolate. That is what we're told that love is. Well, I'm not going to spend a lot of time there because I think it's a ridiculous premise. And we don't have a lot of time. So instead, we're going to talk about what is love to God. That's what's love to man. Love to man is an effect. It's a phenomenon. But what is love to God? Well, God's love is commitment. But what does that mean? What is it commitment to? Well, God's love is commitment to his own nature. God's love is commitment to his own nature, despite pressure. Uh, In the book Uncomfortable by a guy named Brett McCracken, he writes this. In the Old Testament, God chose Israel as his people. And he continually chose them, even when they didn't choose him. He established a covenant with them and was a faithful bridegroom, even when they were an unfaithful bride. Time and time again in the Old Testament, Israel is described as idolatrous and adulterous, choosing to worship idols instead of God. For instance, the golden calf in Exodus 32. And acting like a prostitute who, quote-unquote, receives strangers instead of her husband like in Ezekiel 16.32. And yet God still pursues his people. His love is steadfast. The prophetic message of Hosea captures the dynamic vividly, played out in a real-life marital drama between Hosea and Gomer. The message of Hosea is that even when Israel is adulterous, symbolized by Gomer, the Lord, symbolized by Hosea, is faithful. He is faithful to his own personality despite the pressures. So love to God is commitment. 
God's love, therefore, because it's commitment, creates reliable structures. Covenants is what we call them, or promises. Now, they are promises that he is going to treat things the way that you would expect him to treat things. So not only is God's love faithful, but God's love creates a promise that is reliable. God's love reprioritizes then our presuppositions about how we interact with ourselves and others. Because once you have that commitment that's in place, all of a sudden you can branch off of that commitment. It's a rooted thing. It's grounded. And because it's grounded, you can start hanging things off of it. You can start putting weights on it. And you can hold yourself up based on it. So then all of a sudden you have a choice now to reprioritize what you used to not be able to prioritize. The choice to reprioritize is to prioritize feeling as being subservient to the fulfillment of God's artistry. If you look at Galatians 2.20, for instance, what does it say? Mom, you want to tell us what it says? I know you got it memorized. Yeah, that's your favorite, right? Yes. 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 I am crucified with Christ. Yeah, it is not I who live, but Christ who lives in me. What do you see there? You see the concept of a reprioritization of life based on a promise. God's love reprioritizes. When Christ is presented as the loving fulfillment of God's character, what then choice is man presented? They're presented with a choice to reprioritize their thoughts. We see this in 2 Corinthians. I would read all these, but I'm not going to. So you'll have to go back and listen to it. We see all this in 2 Corinthians 5.17. We see it in Colossians 3.12-14, where it talks about sacrificing the sovereignty of our own feelings. I listed 16 different verses showing this in my, in my sermon notes, and I'll make my sermon notes available to you. There's a, a speaker, his name is Scott McKnight. In a, he has a, a book um, called A Fellowship of Difference. And in it, he writes it this way. Commitment does not deny emotion. Commitment reorders emotion. God's love doesn't deny the fact that there's an emotion that's present in the relationship, but it asks that emotion to be subservient to the knowledge of God's faithfulness, to the knowledge that God is committed to himself, that he will be the person that he intends to be, regardless of what it is that you do. So, if love, then, is not merely an emotion, but it is commitment and it is action and expression, then, then what is love? We talk about love so esoterically in our society. It's not these things. Well, then what is it? Does that make sense? Well, people will tell you, Christians especially, they'll say God is love. And they'll go to 1 John. 1 John chapter 4. Let's open it up. First John chapter 4. <coughs> Excuse me. Dear friends, do not believe everyone who claims to speak by the Spirit. You must test them to see if the Spirit they have comes from God, for there are many false prophets in the world, and this is how we know if they have the Spirit of God. If a person claiming to be a prophet acknowledges that Jesus Christ came in a real body, that person has the Spirit of God. But if someone claims to be a prophet and does not acknowledge the truth about Jesus, that person is not from God. Such a person has the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard is coming into the world and indeed is already here. But you belong to God, my dear children. You have already won a victory over those people because the spirit who lives in you is greater than the spirit who lives in the world. Those people belong to this world, so they speak from the world's viewpoint as the world listens to them. 
But we belong to God, and those who know God listen to us. If they do not belong to God, they do not listen to us. And this is how we know if someone has the spirit of truth or the spirit of deception. What does that have to do with love? Well, what does he immediately say next? Dear friends, let us continue to love one another. For love comes from God, and anyone who loves is a child of God and knows God, but anyone who does not love does not know God, for God is love. God showed how much he loved us by sending his one and only son into the world so that we might have eternal life through him. This is real love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as a sacrifice to take away our sins. Dear friends, since God loved us that much, we surely ought to love each other. No one has ever seen God, but if we love each other, God lives in us, and his love is brought to full expression in us. Yeah, I'll keep reading. And God has given us his spirit as proof that we live in him and he in us. Furthermore, we have seen with our own eyes and now testify that the Father sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. All who declare that Jesus is the Son of God have God living in them, and they live in God. We know how much God loves us, and we have put our trust in his love. God is love. And all who live in love live in God, and God lives in them. And as we live in God, our love grows more perfect. So we will not be afraid of the day of judgment but we can face him with confidence because we live like Jesus here in this world. Such love has no fear because perfect love expels all fear. If we are afraid, it is for fear of punishment, and this shows that we have not fully experienced his perfect love. We love each other because he loved us first. If someone says, I love God, but hates a fellow believer. That person is a liar. For if we don't love people, we can see how can we love God whom we cannot see. And he has given us this commandment, those who love God must also love their fellow believers. Let's sift through that. People say that God is love. You have to remember that when they're saying that God is love, when John is saying that God is love, this is not an esoteric statement. When people say God is love nowadays, it's an esoteric statement. John's not making an esoteric statement, believe it or not. The context that John is speaking on is false narrative. Remember how he starts that out. He talks about what? False prophets. The problem that is being addressed is that the Christians were believing false narrative. And because they were believing in false narrative, from false prophets, they didn't understand how to what? How to love. They had a lack of love. The false narrative started very simply. It started with one simple idea, and that idea was what? That Jesus did not come in a physical body. And John calls this Antichrist. Tidbit, for those of you who don't know, this is the only place in Scripture where Antichrist occurs. It does not occur in the book of Revelation. It does not occur in the book of Thessalonians. This is the only place in Scripture where the term Antichrist appears, and it is speaking of a particular spirit, a spirit that claims to be love, but is disconnected from truth. So John says, this is the spirit of Antichrist. This spirit is seen as having the world's viewpoint. Remember what John says. They listen to these people because they are of the world. It is seen as not belonging to God. And that false narrative became judgment of one's true relationship with God. So, what does that mean? Judgment of one's true relationship with God. Well, you have to understand who is speaking these things. They're not just false prophets. They're Gnostic prophets. That's who John's talking to. He's talking about Gnosticism. Gnosticism believed, okay? Gnosticism believed that true relationship with God is attained via knowledge or gnosis or a knowledge of self rather than commitment, commitment to each other rather than commitment to each other in the original narrative of love. 
Why would that be the case? Well, it's very simple. Because the Gnostics did not believe in a physical uh, body as being what should be there. So what did they claim? They claimed, because you can't deny Christ, they claimed that Christ didn't have a physical body. That way you get to keep Christ. So, if you don't have a physical body and the physical world doesn't matter, then what does it matter what you do with the physical? It doesn't. And when it doesn't matter what you do with the physical, you either throw it completely away and become ascetic, and you don't interact with anybody, or you go the complete opposite direction, and you become hedonistic. And you start imposing your own lusts and desires on other people. And so what was Paul dealing with? He was dealing with a concept of truth which denied the physical body of Christ and was producing a fruit within the church where people would say, God is love. But what they meant by that wasn't that God is commitment, that God is faithful, that God is true. But instead, what they meant by that was that God is knowledge of one's self or self-love. The true narrative is not an inward focus. It is an outward focus. The true narrative is one of commitment. In this narrative where God is love, and indeed he is, God is best seen. In fact, John uses the word full, the phrase full expression. The full expression of God's love happens when we follow Christ. So you want to know what God is and you want to say God is love? It's following Christ. This narrative refocuses our sinful commitment, our sinful priorities from an inward attaining of God, bringing God down to us like Babel, to an outward submission to God and the narrative that he puts in place. This narrative fully expresses the character of God to those who are watching. And when they see that action, they can't deny that there is something beautiful there. To know God is to walk in the full narrative presented in Christ, lived in daily interaction with each other. When it is stated that God is love, this is a practical statement about the error in the common sinful view. It's a statement that God is not knowledge. God is love. See, it's not an esoteric statement. It's a category correction that John is making. It's not saying that God is love in an esoteric way. God is just love. We should... Love. No. John is saying, God is not knowledge. God is love. And love is commitment. So therefore, love each other. God is love. To live in God is to be like God. That is to be loving rather than to simply reason about loving. This is what James says too, right? When he says, when a person comes to you, and they have an immediate need, and you say to them, I'll pray for you. Go with God, be blessed. James says, that's not a true expression of who God is. But hey, I love you. There must be a physical action that is taken that has meaningful consequences in the real world in which we live only this type of love expels fear. In other words, when I see that somebody is willing to put their money where their mouth is, then I stop being afraid. Then I know that that person is actually going to take care of me. That's why Christ is so powerful. Because God put his money where his mouth was. It wasn't just I love everybody. Look, I'm your God. Worship me. That's the thing that makes our God unique, isn't it? Because he chose to lower himself and to put himself through our pain so that we might be in relationship with him. And this was not an esoteric comment. 
This was something that happened in real time and real space and is the best attested incident in the history of antiquity. Only that type of love expels fear. That is a love that is pursued. It is not a mere idea or a fancy. So yes, God is love, but love is not God. Love is a concept. Yes, God is love in the sense that reason is not love. But love is not God. God is so much bigger than that. So then what is love to God then? Love is the expression of God's nature. Love to God is his process. It's his form of expression. It's his language for conveying thought and idea. It's his style. It's his directorial flair. If God was J.J. Abrams, then love would be literal lens flair. Nobody gets that, huh? Adam got it. It went over Pastor Dad's head, he said. Let me find a better example. If God was Alfred Hitchcock, then... Is that going back too far? Okay. Screen wipe, it'd be George Lucas. If God was Alfred Hitchcock, it might be the vertigo camera effect. It's, it's his directorial flair. It's a language, a method of storytelling that God uses. God's love, then, comes from his personality. Again, just like George Lucas is not the camera wipe. You ever watch Star Wars? And in Star Wars, they just wipe the screen to, to another scene. It's deplorable. In any case, that's not George Lucas. You can't say, well, that's all that George Lucas is. Some people say, God is love, so love must be God. No. God is so much bigger than that. Yes, God is agape. So yes, God has this selfless love, but he is also righteous. He is also holy. He is also just. And those things coexist with each other in perfect polity and pairing. God is not merely love. You cannot reduce God to that. So love is God's primary method. You can't remove the method of love because it's part of God's personality. And though you could remove the method of love, say, from my personality, if I was to try to tell a story in love, you can't with God. Why do you think that is? Because God is infinite. So because God is infinite in nature, God always tells his story with love. Because God is infinite in nature, he always tells his story with mercy and with justice, and with righteousness, and with holiness. Love is, in practicality of space and time, therefore, the same as God. Because you can't remove it. So, is God love? By human terms, yeah. But is love God? No. Is God love in an esoteric sense? No. And anybody who tries to tell you that doesn't understand. And that is exactly the point that Paul's making. And it is an atro or Paul, John. And it is an atrocity that John's words have been taken out of context. And it have been made to point out, God is love. Just love everybody. If you read the entire passage, which I did, you'll see that God is not merely love, and that that love has to follow the personality of God. Love is a method. Love, therefore, is a discipline. A method. It is a discipline of God's. It is a method to his being. And since his being is, is infinite, love then has always been and always will be. Therefore, creation is formed by it. It is redeemed by it. God is known by it. It is his signature in nature his directorial flair. So, love then is set apart. It is distinct. In other words, when we see it, we see God. I may not see L-U, but I see God when I see love. 
If I see LU using God's directorial method, guess who I see? God. That's why people who are extra loving are seen as saintly. Why? Because they're showing God. They're showing God's directorial flair. Love is different. It's set apart. It's different from all other methods of telling stories that we have. Love looks like God. Love shows God to people. Love makes people act like God. Of course, true love is best seen in Christ. Again, from that book, Uncomfortable, this is what he says. He, speaking of Christ, traded his perfectly, perfect heavenly home for the fragile human form. He endured shame, ridicule, torture, and death in our place. Why? Because God so loved the world. John 3.16 That he sent his son who loved us and gave himself for us. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends, said Jesus in John 15.3. Both describing his own action and challenging his followers to follow. Self-effacing and, and others serving, sacrificial. This is the central idea of Christian love. By this we know that Jesus Christ laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. 1 John 3.16. I like that one a lot better than I like just regular John 3.16 for the record. This is the uncomfortable meaning of love. It doesn't lead to easier or sexier lives. It leads to sacrifice. That's the core idea. But it applies in different ways. The following, well, okay, yeah, yeah. By the way, if you're interested in the little bit of this book that you've heard, it's in our digital library. So then, love breeds righteous relationships. Righteous, holy, set apart, love is covenant, love is promise. So when people interact because of covenant and promise, then relationships become holy and set apart. That makes sense. So love breeds righteous relationships. And we see that best described in 1 Corinthians 13. Everybody knows 1 Corinthians 13, right? <coughs> Very good. It's read at marriages all the time as the perfect description of love. Just like 1 John 4 is read for God is love. Let's be esoterically loving. Well, 1 Corinthians 13 also often taken out of context to talk about what love is. So they say, starting at Verse 4, love is patient, love is kind, it's not jealous, love does not brag, it's not arrogant, does not act unbecomingly, does not seek its own, is not provoked, does not take into account wrong suffering, does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails, but if there are gifts, prophecies, they will be done away. If there are tongues, they will cease. If there is knowledge, it will be done away with. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will be done away. When I was a child, I used to speak like a child, think like a child, reason like a child. When I became a man, I did away with childish things, for we now see in a mirror darkly, but then face to face, now I know in part, but then I will know fully, just as I also have been fully known. So now faith, hope, love abide these three, but the greatest of these is love. So love doesn't judge other people, right? I mean, that's what it says. Except for, I started off, by saying that love breeds righteous relationship. See, he makes a statement, and by the very fact that he makes this statement, Paul makes this statement, love is. That's him making a presuppositional statement now. Love is. In other words, binary. Okay? It means it's either or. Love is. This is not a knowledge of love, again, that is esoteric. It's not subjective. It's not, let me define love. Love is these things, and these things can have these meanings. I might as well be saying, love is a kumquat, and kumquats are yellow. And yellow is whatever color you want it to be. So be yellow. That's what I might as well be saying. Except that's not what Paul does. 
Paul says love is, right? So it's not a knowledge of love that's esoteric. It's not subjective. It is a structure of love that is grounded. It's grounded in action. He says love is kind. Love rejoices in truth. Love bears all things, endures all things, suffers all things. These are actions. These are measurable, quantifiable in time and space. These are actions. This love is seen in practice. This love is exclusive in application. It's binary. Like I said, you either are or you are not these things. There are eight different things in this passage that love is not. In other words, Paul is not making, again, a subjective commentary. He's saying, this is love, this is not. This is love, this is not. Eight different times he says, this is not love. This love is powerful beyond human frailty. It bears, it believes, it hopes, it endures all things. All. It's even greater than faith. You believe that? This type of love is greater than faith. It's even greater than hope. This love creates a fondness for truth. This love is holy. You know why I know it's holy? Because it says this love does not rejoice in unrighteousness. So therefore, it is set apart. You cannot tell me that something is loving if it is not holy by God's standard. If it looks like everything else, that's not love. Man always responds to this type of love. Always. The biblical standard for love is based upon a normative response to the true north of the image of God within us. In other words, it responds to the acts of godliness. There's a distinction between being godly versus being godlike. It always responds to the act of godliness. Mostly self-sacrifice. So whenever you see somebody being self-sacrificial, all of a sudden there's a part of us that sort of perks up. And we're like, oh. because we've now seen God. We've seen the full expression of God. Man, therefore, tries to emulate God. According to two types of love, we're told we can emulate God. By loving God, specifically, and loving men, specifically. Jesus, of course, says that the greatest type of love is the type that lays down its life for his friend. Why? Because it fulfills both types of love. Because God is sacrificial. And he loves people. Man always leans into it. When he sees this, he always leans into the effect. Every time we see this, every time we see that lens flare pop up, man gets at the front of his seat. And he's like, oh, this is going to get good. This is going to get good. And then when he goes and he tries to write his own narrative, and he sits down and he's like, this is so great. I'm, gonna, I'm inspired now. I watched this. I'm going to write my own work. Guess what? He fails at it. He fails at it because sin removes our ability to direct like God. It turns us into hack jobs as directors. We suck at it. So, then what are we to do? Well, the scripture also says that this love can be learned. Once you have the right teacher, this love can be learned. It looks like sacrifice and servanthood. In Mark 10, 42-45, Jesus talks about this. So Jesus called them together and said, You know that the rulers in this world lorded over their people, and officials flaunt their authority over those under them. But among you it will be different. Whoever wants to be a leader among you must be the servant. 
Whoever wants to be first among you must be the slave of everyone. Even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve others and to give his life as a ransom for many. Is your version of love ready to sacrifice? Is it self-sacrificial? Because it can be learned. Jesus thought it could be learned. He told his disciples as much. It looks like the harmony of actions and polity of spirit. In Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, Therefore, if you have any encouragement in Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, then make my joy complete by being one mind, having the same love, being united in spirit and purpose. In other words, one love means having the same mind united in spirit and purpose. One love does not mean esoterically being completely different from each other, doing whatever you want to as long as you tolerate each other. That is not a phalanx. That is chaotic. If you were to take that into battle, you would be slaughtered. Is your version of love ready to put aside for the interest of the greater good? Love looks foolish. Some might call it having no earthly good. John chapter 12 speaks of Mary anointing Jesus with expensive oil and the disciples being bothered by that because she could have spent that money elsewhere. Not being a good steward. Jesus says, let her be. Your priorities are messed up. Love has reprioritized Mary, hasn't she? Hasn't it? Love has reprioritized Mary's mind and said, I have him now, and I have this in front of me, and I'm going to give it to him, regardless of the fact that I could spend it on other things. Why? Because I love him. John 13, then has Jesus, one chapter later, turning around and doing what? Washing the feet of his disciples. Un heard of by a master, by a rabbi. 1 Corinthians 1.18 speaks of the message of the cross as being foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved. It's the very power of God. This is what that book talks about. <clears throat> but love at its best only works when each party gives more than each takes. Seeking the other's flourishing first. This may look like weakness to the world. And Lewis, speaking of C.S. Lewis, is right that to love at all is to be vulnerable. But as we've already seen in this book, weakness is strength in the economy of Christ. It's vulnerable for foster families to love a child who will only be in their care for a temporary time. Speaking from experience, and I know some of you guys have that, it's true. It is vulnerable. It's vulnerable to speak up to a friend about a damaging pattern that you observe in their life. It's vulnerable to enter a potentially dangerous situation in order to help someone at risk. This sort of love is countercultural in a world of consumerism and self-preservation where the default is to seek first what is easiest and best for me. Is your version of love ready to be sometimes socially stupid? Sometimes even socially immoral. In other words, society would condemn you for it. Ready to be ridiculed by those around you. Are you ready to be made into the joke to love each other? Love looks focused and intended. Psalms 86 says very simply, Teach me your way, O Lord. I will walk in your truth. Unite my heart to fear your name. Is your love ready to be disciplined in a unified way? Is it willing to give fully of itself, to have your heart united, rather than to pick and choose what parts you want to give to God or give to another person? Are you ready to have your heart united 
to be taught by God. It looks like struggle and discipline and correction. John 8 talks about the woman caught in adultery, the very famous scene which says that, you know, Jesus uh, said to them, you who are without sin, cast the first stone, right? So clearly Jesus is saying adultery is cool. Except what is it that Jesus says to her? Go and sin no more. We're so big on the other side of it, right? Especially in this culture. I don't want to be the one to cast the first stone because, you know, I'm a sinful person too. So, you know, I'm not perfect, so I'm not going to say anything. Well, let God judge. God can deal with that. Except for Jesus goes a step further. Go and sin no more. What happened between Paul and Peter in the book of Galatians? Where Paul stood up in the middle of a dinner with a bunch of people that everybody knew and chastised Peter for the way that Peter was behaving. He straight up called Peter out. And then, not only did he call Peter out in front of those people, but then he wrote a book (laughs) where he goes and he talks about it. And guess what Peter says in response? The writings of our brother Paul should be viewed as Scripture. Did Peter have an issue with the fact that Paul called him out? Maybe. Did it stop him from responding the way that he should? No. And in fact, he turns around and says that the writings of Paul should be viewed as Scripture. The whole book of Corinthians is about calling out the church at Corinth for an inappropriate practice of the use of spiritual gifts and for an extramarital relationship between a son-in-law and his mother-in-law. Paul constantly calls people out. Jesus calls people out. Yet we're sitting here saying, I'm not going to cast that first stone because, you know, I'm, I'm loving and God is love. Tell you what, God is not. BS. You see, real love can be learned. It looks like struggle, discipline, and correction. Because of that, it looks inconvenient. You telling me that when we look at the story of the Good Samaritan coming down the road, the Good Samaritan, yeah, coming down the road. That's not a story of inconvenience, because it is. Those people who claimed in that story to be of high moral value could not be bothered, could not be bothered. And then you have the Samaritan, who by all reports shouldn't you know, shouldn't help this person because they're mean to them because they're Samaritans, they're second-class citizens. But they love. They're loving. What about Jesus and the Samaritan woman by the well? You know that passage in John 4, it speaks of Jesus being thirsty after preaching all day. So Jesus is thirsty. It's not like, I'm thirsty, so I'm going to go to the, water, the, the faucet and fill up my water bottle. You have to go draw water. That's a process. You have to go to a place that has water. That's a process. Jesus is thirsty after preaching all day, and he finds a woman by the well. And what does he do? Well, it never says that she draws water for him, I think. But instead, he preaches to her. That's inconvenient. Paul is jailed multiple times because of his love for Christ. That is inconvenient love. Luke chapter 22, a famous passage where Jesus is about to be 
taken by the Roman soldiers. And what happens? That's right. Peter goes and cuts off an ear of a soldier. And Jesus, at the hardest time in his life, because he loves, heals one of the very people who's about to put him through something terrible. And it's not like he doesn't know. First Corinthians 16, Corinthians 8, Galatians 2, they all talk about financial inconvenience, about bearing the financial burden for each other, for the church, for the leadership of the church. Is your narrative of love willing to open its notions and priorities to help another person? It looks like a move toward holiness. We are to be holy in our love. John 13, 34 to 35, it says this, A new commandment I give to you, love one another. As I have loved you, so also you must love one another. By this all men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Is your version of love willing to be a witness to who Christ is? By this, they will know that you are my disciples. Why do we love each other? Why do we love each other? We are to tell God's narrative in our love. First, we must repent and allow our own narrative to slip away. That really gets people. I don't know. Josh is pulling some cult leader stuff up there. Let our own narrative slip away. That's, you know... Got to keep that self. That's not what the scripture says. The scripture says we must repent and allow our own narrative to slip away. Galatians, again, 2.20, for the third time today. I have been crucified with Christ, and it is not I who live, but it is Christ who lives in me. Second, we must allow God's narrative to gain hold of our minds and our actions. Romans says, be transformed by the renewing of your minds. Third, we walk in Christ and we practice his teachings. Fourth, we walk with others in the same struggle. Five, we allow the old self to die and the new self to rise. So, we go back to Psalms 146. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O my soul. I will praise the Lord as long as I live. I will sing praises to my God while I have my being. Put not your trust in princes, in a son of man in whom there is no salvation. When his breath departs, he returns to the earth, and on that very day his plans perish. Blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord his God, who made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them, who keeps faith forever, who executes justice for the oppressed, who gives food to the hungry. The Lord sets the prisoners free. The Lord opens the eyes of the blind. The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. The Lord watches over the sojourners. He upholds the widow and the fatherless. But the way of the wicked he brings to ruin. The Lord will reign forever. Your God, O Zion, to all generations. Praise the Lord. That is the picture of love. Does your love look like that? Why do we love each other? Why should we love each other? Because the universe is love? Because God is love? Because of social contract? Because evolved species evolved the concept of love? Because of chemical reactions? Because of social programming? No. No. You are believers. Those are not big enough to explain what you know love to be. We love because, as 1 John 4.19 says, we love 
because he first loved us. So this year, we're going to learn about how he first loved us and then how you then can love each other. We will learn what it means to walk in God's style, to tell God's story with God's tools rather than our own tools, rather than our own story. We will learn to love as he loved because he first loved us. And therefore, we will learn to first love others. As God did, as God does. We will learn what it means to sign creation with God's signature as his very body on earth to be the full expression of our God. We're going to talk about it in our daily lives. For the next year, we're going to be discussing these topics. What is healthy? What is healthy, godly patience with each other? What does it mean to be patient with each other? What is submission in a Christ-centered narrative? What does it mean to submit to each other? How do we encourage each other? What does it mean to be godly in our encouragement rather than just simply, what's the word I'm looking for? Enabling. What is healthy sacrifice? What does it mean to give correctly to another person? What does family mean in a Christ-centered narrative? Not our own narrative, not a social narrative, not an American narrative, but a Christ-centered narrative. What does family mean? How can we, in a healthy way, handle conflicts with each other? What does it mean to lead each other in a Christ-centered narrative? What is discipline? What does it mean to, be, to, to enact discipline with each other in a Christ-centered narrative? How do we invest in each other? How do we connect to the things that will make the other person better? How do we equip each other? How do we provide each other with what we have that will grow that person into the person they need to be? And what does it look like for us to collaborate with each other, to take one thing and work together on that thing? These are all the topics that we'll be discussing month by month this year. To what degree does your narrative of love match up with that of the Bible? To what degree does your narrative of love match up with the Bible? Be honest with yourself. 50%, 70%, 95%. And then ask yourself, how much more of your narrative are you willing to give up this year? How much more are you willing to stress yourself? How much deeper are you willing to look? I really want you guys to be thinking about your thought, thinking about your thought. Yeah, thinking about your thought on love. Ask yourself if you have the right definition. Not ask yourself if you have the comfortable definition or the definition that is this sort of precious illusion that you've held on to for, you know, for your life. Ask yourself if that's the right definition. And we'll work on it together. Okay. We're going to, um, I think we're going to pray to close. So let's pray. Dear Lord, thank you for this day. Thank you for allowing us the opportunity to come together to speak plainly and clearly about what makes your love the prime narrative. I just pray that you will um, allow us as we go forward to to fully commit to following 
your method to learning these things that all of humanity resonates with um, and to mastering them. Pray that you will keep us strong, keep us safe, keep us knitted together. Let us create a phalanx for you. I just pray that um, you'll bless our efforts this year um, and that we will grow exponentially, not just in our knowledge um, of these things, but that we'll grow in our love for each other, that we'll really walk away from 2018 into 2019, really having just a sincere and and godly, righteous, holy love for each other. Pray that you keep us safe, um, especially as tonight's celebration night, and that um, everybody, yeah, everybody stay safe. Pray all these things in your name. We love you. Amen. So next week we resume regular cell groups. <laughs>